Well, welcome to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is the 2021 summer interlude between seasons. This summer, we're sharing brand new lectures by Joe Boot from a series produced in partnership with Answers in Genesis called Creation, Cross, and Culture. Catch a new episode each week, and we'll be back in September with a new season of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. Justice, Race, and Revolution, Part 2. As the issue of race has received greater visibility in recent years, there is a striking note of division amongst what purports to be a movement for unity and reconciliation. This is no accident. The sinister attempt to put people at war with each other and divide society has involved the co-opting of black identity and culture by a movement of radicals and then putting it to a political purpose in the name of social justice. Key to the attempt to divide is a one-sided and revisionist interpretation of cultural history that seeks to paint one ethnic and cultural group as the oppressive cause of all society's ills with everyone else as victims. Now, throughout history, there has always been prejudice, resentment, and the mistreatment of fellow image bearers on every continent. There always will be till the fullness of Christ's kingdom comes. However, remarkable cultural progress has been made, particularly in Western society, and most especially through great Christians like William Wilberforce, Charles G. Finney, and Martin Luther King Jr. in overcoming laws and practices that enslaved or discriminated against people, in some cases purely on the basis of their skin color. Because of this cultural struggle in terms of biblically derived principles, today I am aware of no existing public law within the United States, Canada or the United Kingdom that discriminates against any person based on ethnicity. Indebted to the Christian gospel, the Anglo-American tradition has emphasized the rule of law, resting on the equal dignity and worth of every human being made in the image of God. Of course, this legal reality does not rule out the presence of ethnic prejudice or resentment in the hearts of some people, any more than the rule of law can eliminate pride or lust leading to various other sins. But not all sins are crimes to be punished by the state or fixed by human legislation. We cannot criminally or legally punish people for feelings of resentment towards Asians, indigenous peoples, blacks or whites. As Christians, we can only call people to repentance in Christ so that hearts are changed and the life of the kingdom made manifest. Now, to to stir animosity, hatred or division, a great deal has been made by the BLM agitators of the African slave trade and the supposed need to tear down statues, portraits or symbols of anyone or anything associated with it, either directly, indirectly or even by mere cultural association. 
Although the implications of the transatlantic slave trade and the later Democratic Party Jim Crow laws enforcing segregation in the southern United States must not be overlooked in understanding the economic and psychological situation of some in the black community today, on their own, these deficits simply cannot account for the lagging status of many in the black community. The sad fact is, almost every civilized nation at one time consisted of multitudes of slaves, even in majority in some cities in Southeast Asia. Whites, Asians, the peoples of the Middle East, as well as blacks, have been repeatedly enslaved. The institution of slavery itself is not inherently based on race, as most slaves have been of the same ethnic origin as their enslavers. In fact, there were more slaves in India than the entire Western Hemisphere during the era of slavery. China had one of the largest and most comprehensive slave markets known to man, and the Islamic nations, even to this day in some African states, have seen the ubiquity of slavery to the extent that slaves were part of the money of the African economy. Interestingly, the word slave is actually derived from the name of a European people, Slavs, a region enslaved long before an African was bought as a slave by a European and brought to the West. These facts have been carefully explored by one of America's foremost intellectuals and economists, Thomas Sowell. As a black man growing up in underprivileged circumstances and for many years a devoted Marxist, Sowell's intellectual clarity, insight and honesty in pursuit of the truth has won him widespread respect and admiration. Sowell has shown that contrary to the claims of Black Lives Matter protesters and the Western intelligentsia supporting them, the Christianized West led the world in freedom, opportunity, prosperity, and opposition to slavery. And this is what Sowell says, and I quote, what was peculiar about Western society was not that it had slaves, like other societies around the world, but that it was the first civilization to turn against slavery, and that it spent more than a century destroying slavery, not only within Western civilization itself, but also in other countries around the world, over the often bitter and sometimes armed resistance of people in other societies. Only the overwhelming military power of Western nations during the age of imperialism made this possible. Slavery did not quietly die down of its own accord. It went down fighting to the bitter end in countries around the world, and it is still not totally died out in parts of the Middle East and Africa." End quote. Sowell further demonstrates that it is not a history involving slavery, but cultural attitudes, behaviors, and belief, which are the main predictors of outcome in life for all people. Skin color, he says, play a relatively minor role in modern Western society. 
For example, the Wall Street Journal pointed out that nationwide, the average black 12th grader reads at the level of a white 8th grader. Yet, charter students in Harlem at schools like KIPP and Democracy Prep are outperforming their white peers in wealthy suburbs. Sol goes on to write, and I quote, Many of the schools that have been successful with black students have gone against cultural values that permeate ghetto communities. Now, his point here is vital. The ghetto culture of some black communities is frequently represented or regarded as authentic black culture, especially by the politically correct white community. But it isn't authentic or black when you examine its cultural history. In fact, many of the behaviors, mannerisms, ways of speaking, and attitudes common to this ghetto culture were absorbed by some blacks from white redneck culture in the antebellum South. This uh, redneck culture, in turn, was actually imported from the cracker culture of the Anglo-Scottish border areas, a lawless clan region with a dysfunctional society and conflicted allegiances. Sexual promiscuity, work aversion, drunkenness, propensity for violence, and a despising of education were characteristic of this area. Significant numbers from these communities emigrated to the southern states where clusters of these attitudes became endemic in segments of white society and were picked up by some black communities. So the present challenges of violent crime, sexual promiscuity, family breakdown and hostility to education and work found in some segments of the black community have no claim to being black culture. The very idea is an insult to millions of hardworking, successful, and high-achieving blacks across the world. In view of this interesting observation, the present attempts to condemn law enforcement agencies as systemically racist and to slander police officers dealing with this cracker culture on a daily basis as racists out to shoot blacks are dangerous and misplaced, not to mention contrary to the most careful national studies of policing in the United States. As the lead researcher in one major study, Joseph Cesario, associate professor of psychology at Michigan State, has commented, and I quote, our data show that the rate of crime by each racial group correlates with the likelihood of citizens from that racial group being shot. If you live in a county that has a lot of white people committing crimes, white people are more likely to be shot. If you live in a county that has a lot of black people committing crimes, black people are more likely to be shot. It is the best predictor we have of fatal police shootings." End quote. Now, in a 2019 article by Tom Kennedy covering the research, he actually comments that the professor said that by connecting the findings of police officer race, victim race, and crime rates, 
The research suggests that the best way to understand police shootings isn't racial bias of the police officer, rather by the exposure to police officers through crime. The vast majority, between 90 and 95% of the civilians shot by officers were actively attacking police or other citizens when they were shot. 90% also were armed with a weapon when they were shot. The horrific cases of accidental shootings, like mistaking a cell phone for a gun, are rare, Cesario said. We hear about the really horrendous and tragic cases of police shootings for a reason. They're awful cases, they have major implications for police-community relations, and so they should get attention, Cesario said." End quote. Now, of course, there are inevitable disparities and inequalities of outcome for people in every society around the world, as well as between nations themselves. Thomas Sowell, who is not a Christian, has demonstrated persuasively that these disparities are overwhelmingly the result of cultural beliefs and practices. Institutions within society may convey those disparities, but it is quite another matter to say they cause them. What we believe and practice in regard to sexual morality, marriage, family life, discipline and hard work all have profound implications for social, vocational, and economic outcomes, whatever our ethnic background. Until 1960, about two-thirds of black children were living in two-parent families. Today, the fact that 75% of young black men in America don't have a father in their life will inevitably cause disparities and inequalities that the rule of law is powerless to fix. This is because the roots of the problem are religious and cultural, not political or institutional. We are frequently told that poverty is the real cause of criminality, but there is less poverty today in the black community than in 1950 when imprisonment of black males was lower. Interestingly, the same trajectory is seen in Britain among lower class whites, where a burgeoning counterproductive underclass has been created by social democratic state policy amidst the growing collapse of the family. The reality is, since 1994, the poverty rate among black husband-wife families has been below 10%. But these families, whilst living with the same external system, represent a different internal culture and values. Now, to say these things involves accepting the idea that judgments about cultural values are necessary to make progress. It means embracing the reality that some beliefs and values are superior to others morally, socially, rationally, historically, and culturally. The progressive dogma that all cultural attitudes, beliefs, and practices must be regarded as equal is part of the new left's egalitarian delusion and is totally destructive of progress for any nation or community. 
Without doubt, it has been the borrowings of cultural and technological insights between civilizations and nations for thousands of years, substituting various features for better ones, that has led to development, progress, and prosperity. The progressive dogma of multiculturalism, which refuses to judge beliefs, values, and practices in terms of transcendent, transcultural, and transhistorical norms, inevitably handicaps people in the real world. Again, as Thomas Sowell has observed, the promotion of separate group identities not only fragments society into warring factions, it keeps those groups that are lagging, whether lagging economically or educationally or both, from fully utilizing the existing culture of the larger society around them for their own advancement. He goes on. Multiculturalism, like the caste system, tends to freeze people where the accident of births has placed them. Unlike the caste system, multiculturalism holds out the prospect that all cultures being equal, one's life chances should be the same, and that it's society's fault if these chances are not the same. Although both caste and multiculturalism suppress individual opportunities, they differ primarily in that the caste system preaches resignation to one's fate and multiculturalism preaches resentment of one's fate. Once again, identity ideology and multiculturalism, thought products of European intellectuals in the grip of hatred of the Christian legacy, actually hold down the very people they claim to be helping, and they burden with guilt everyone else. Shame and guilt are not uniquely Christian ideas. They are part of the universal human experience. However, it is only Christianity that articulates a way to effectively deal with shame and guilt by nailing it to the cross of Christ. If people reject the idea that they have sinned against a holy God, that rejection does not get rid of sin or its attendant guilt and shame. It just forces them to place it on something other than the cross. And nothing but the cross can bear that weight. In our time, the chosen instrument for attempted expiation of sin is the realm of politics. As the late Armenian-American scholar Rushduni pointed out, and I quote, man cannot get rid of the burden of sin by himself. Man tries first either to pay for his sins himself by masochistic activity, a futile process, or second, to make others pay for them through sadistic activities. Both activities lead to sick lives and sick societies. In addition, the political cultivation of guilt is a central means to power, for guilty men are slaves, their conscience is in bondage, and hence they are easily made objects of control. 
The politics of guilt with its gospel of social justice offers a form of atonement that leads only to enslavement in the hearts of individuals and in society. The BLM agitator's motive in our time appears increasingly sadistic in its desire to lay on groups in society, such as the police, government officials, whites or others, the burden of sin and guilt, whilst the media enablers and political cultivators of guilt, taking a knee and prostrating themselves in false confession and repentance, are caught in a masochistic motive of self-atonement in the hopes of clinging to power and control and manipulating people in terms of their ideological purpose. But the sad result for everyone of this utopian project is only more societal sickness and enslavement because there is no remission for sin or true reconciliation outside of Jesus Christ. Whatever one's ethnicity, only a person and culture that is grounded in the atonement of Jesus Christ can know what it means to be free from guilt and shame personally, move toward freedom socially through reconciliation and restitution, and build a free society. It should not be surprising to Christians that we feel increasing pressure to respond to the calls for social justice in our society. As believers, we want to be on the side of righteousness and justice because our desire is to be on the Lord's side. But we frequently hear voices, even of churchmen and clergy, that sow confusion of mind. We have been indoctrinated in the West by our own intelligentsia for decades to believe that we are guilty just for being Christians or for being white. The inference of the ongoing social revolution is that though Christians must recognize all the identity rights of others, believers have no right to their identity. And this is a great tragedy for our culture because the liberating identity of those in the covenant of grace transcends skin color and ethnic origin and refuses to look at the world in terms of us and them, oppressors versus oppressed, but grasps all reality in light of our creation, fall and redemption as a human race. This is a gospel of new birth and inner renewal that results in a cosmic, creational, cultural, and social healing revealed in the scriptures and manifest through the Lord Jesus Christ who is reconciling us to God and one another as one covenant people in him. There is no other message and no other community like it. It is the community, the family, of the King of Kings. So in spite of the difficulties and intimidation frequently faced when standing for Christ and his word, we must remember that because of Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice, God's justice has been satisfied. Our consciences have been cleansed and we have been delivered from bondage into the culture of Christian liberty, the kingdom of God. In this culture, we can love and serve others and the cause of God's justice with hope and joy, knowing that if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. 
For this is the victory that overcomes the world, says the Apostle John, even our faith. Thank you.